So we have been looking in this series at pictures of redemption in the exodus and the parting and crossing of the Red Sea. And we're going to see, we have been seeing how these pictures of redemption are now fulfilled in the new covenant under Christ. And they're beautiful pictures. Redemption, remember, is something that is from our past. It is when we were converted, when the Spirit of God changed us, washed us clean, forgave us of all of our sins. But redemption is also something that God continually does. He redeems us. He redeems, remember, it says, our life from the pit. That means there is a constant redeeming process in our lives concerning problems, circumstances that fill our life. He redeems our life from the pit regularly, not just in the past, but every day. And God is able to take those problems, those darkest hours, if you will, before the dawn and turn them around to actually maximize his glory. In the next week, we're going to be looking at how God is able to redeem us fully at the end of the age when Christ comes back. But I want us to look at something here. I have, whoops. Now, I've already shown this to you. We're going to, we were looking at the Exodus, and many have suggested that the parting of the Red Sea, well, maybe I should do it over here. The parting of the Red Sea took place in some of these lakes in the northeast of Egypt, just outside or maybe even within the land of Goshen. And I've suggested to you that this tends to seriously downplay this miracle that God had done in parting the Red Sea, because understand that the parting of the Red Sea was not only the greatest miracle in the Old Testament, but Scripture conclusively tells us that this event reverberated like a stone thrown into a pond and its ripples move outwards, so this event reverberated throughout the nations. And the scriptures say that it filled those nations in Canaan with fear. Now, I'm not sure that parting three feet of water or even 10 feet of water would instill much fear in anyone, but, or especially when supposedly a strong wind did this. But scripture makes it clear there was a wall of water to the left and a wall of water to the right. Now, I want us to see uh, it's a little bit hard here because of what we've got on stage. Maybe over here, is that where the camera is focused? Or is it, is it, we'll just, I'll just do this. So this right here is the Nuweba Beach. This right here is the Wadi Watir. It goes all the way up here, as you can see, twists and winds. It's basically a ravine or a valley, several hundred yards to a quarter or more of a mile wide, half a mile wide. And let me go back. It's, it starts up here and travels all the way down, twisting and winding through the mountains till it gets to about here in Nuiba Beach. You can see it as it, as it now comes into the beach, the Nuiba Beach here. And I'm going to suggest that this is probably where the pillar of fire was. Now, we looked at several scripture verses that tell us that the Red Sea is actually the Gulf of Aqaba. We looked at three very clear scripture passages and concluded this. Now, I also, when, when they crossed the Red Sea, we need to realize that they were going somewhere. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6, if you haven't, and the Bible tells us very clear what God's intention was. Before God 
displayed his power, his mighty hand in the 10 plagues, he had already told Moses what he was going to do. Look there at chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now listen in verse 6. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, using his covenantal name here. He was bringing them out to bring them in. But they pit-stopped at a place. Uh, I'm going to go over here. They pit-stopped at Mount Sinai. Now, just give me a moment here, because most of you are looking at this map and kind of scratching your head and wondering, but that's not where Mount Sinai is. If I look in the maps in the back of my Bible, they all have Mount Sinai in in the peninsula here, right about there. It's called Jebel Moose. They believed that they came down this way to here and then up to Ezi and Geber, which is right about here, and then to Kadesh Barnea to be able to conquer the land. This is the supposed route that most of our Bibles will reveal. The question, though, the the truth, though, I want to share with you in the beginning is, number one, the Sinai Peninsula did not get its name until the 3rd century AD. Okay. Additionally, Mount Sinai was located there about that time as well. Let me just suggest something to you. If you remember in Exodus 3, and you can turn there if you want, but in Exodus 3, Moses, we have discovered in the previous chapter, has fled to Midian. Remember, he killed the Egyptian, fled. Pharaoh wanted to kill him, and he he found safety in Midian. Midian is located right about here. Some suggest because of some pottery they found it's as, it's as far north as here, but it is not over in the, in the Sinai Peninsula, as we call it today. Midian, for the most part, is here and maybe a little bit along the Gulf of Aqaba. When Moses goes to Midian, within Midian, he goes to the far side of the desert and there finds a burning bush. And it is there at the burning bush that God reveals himself, but he has come to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. So wherever Midian is, this, of course, is where Mount Sinai will be found. Additionally, there is a mountain over here called Jebel El-Laz. This mountain has... At its feet, plenty of room for two million people to gather. That would not be able to be said for the traditional sign of Mount Sinai here in Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. One last thing I want to bring to your attention. I've got it marked in my Bible, so you don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read it to you. Moses has spent an entire year at Mount Sinai, and he is about to move on towards the promised land. He asks his brother-in-law, Hobab, strange name, but he asks Hobab if he would be able to help them since he knows the area to find their way towards the promised land. You know the area. Hobab turns it down, but he says this. He says, he answered, no, I will not go. I am going back to my own land and my own people. I'm going back to my own land and to my own people. You see, Hobab, and I'm going to 
tell you, Hobab's homeland was right around in here. If he, if he were at Mount Sinai, Midian would be on the way. So why would he say to Moses, I can't go with you. I need to go back to my people. Unless Mount Sinai is over here on the far side of this desert, and Hobab saying, I need to go back here as you move on. I just want to throw this out to you because once we have located Mount Sinai, we're going to be able to locate the parting of the Red Sea. And again, the significance of this, if they cross the Gulf of Aqaba, which at the point of Nuiba Beach is about a half mile deep, this indeed would be an amazing, amazing miracle. One, of course, that would reverberate through the nations of Canaan and set fear in their hearts. Again, this is the type of God that we serve who does the miraculous. So let me go back. The point, though, of calling them out of Egypt was to call them and lead them into the promised land. Their goal, after 430 years, we're told, is the promised land. In the promised land, they would inherit vines they didn't plant, they would inherit houses they didn't build. They would inherit land that they hadn't cultivated. And all of this was going to be given as their inheritance. Now, God truly owned the land, and he called them tenants. But the truth is, this was all going to be theirs. It would all be theirs. Two million people now inhabiting this land, as Scripture says, flowing with milk and honey. I used to picture milk and honey flowing off waterfalls. That doesn't sound exciting to me, so just understand there's a bit of a metaphor that, or, or, or figurative speech that he's using here. My question then is, what is our promised land? If God is taking us out of our darkness into his marvelous light, what does that look like? And I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Scripture says in Hebrews 12, verse 18, it says, you have not come to a mountain, and he's specifically referring to Mount Sinai here, that, you would be, that, that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and a storm, to a trumpet blast or a sound of a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that they know further, that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. You haven't come as believers. We haven't come to a Mount Sinai. What have we come to? It says, we have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now, if you were to turn also to Galatians chapter 4, you would also read this. In Galatians 4, Verses 25 and 26, Paul is telling the Galatians, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia, which by the way, Mount Sinai or the Sinai Peninsula during the time that Paul wrote was not considered Arabia. What we call present day Saudi Arabia was Arabia. Mount Sinai is in Arabia. But he says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. 
You see, church, the promised land, Jerusalem be, is, is the representative city of this promised land to the Jews. Jerus- our Jerusalem is not a physical city. Our Jerusalem, our kingdom, if you will, is the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are ambassadors here on earth to be able to minister life, the truth of the gospel, to those around us. But we are in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what you have inherited. This is our promised land. So now when we're looking at this picture and trying to investigate, okay, we've been brought out of the slavery of Egypt into Canaan, the promised land. What is our promised land? The promised land is the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to just list some of the characteristics of this promised land because the promised land carries with it promises. In the kingdom of God, God has given you very precious promises, Peter tells us. There are certain things that are yours because you have been birthed into the kingdom of God. You've been brought out of darkness into his light, and you have received this amazing inheritance. And I'm just going to list some of the things. Number one, you have been chosen before the creation of the world. This is inevitable. Every Christian has been chosen, has been called of God, and now received an inheritance. You have also received the deposit of the Holy Spirit. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So you have received the deposit of the Spirit, which guarantees your inheritance, Paul told the Ephesians. Let me share another one with you. Because the Spirit of God lives in you, you are children or part of the family of God. That is inevitable. For everyone who believes in Jesus, you have now, by the Spirit, been adopted into the family of God. You belong to Jesus. Why? Because he redeemed you. You are his. This is inevitable. This is for every Christian. This is your inheritance. Your sin is forgiven. There are no exceptions to this. It's not that some Christians are forgiven and some aren't. All Christians, all believers in Jesus have been forgiven. Sins washed away. Your conscience has been made clear. You have received new life in Christ. Now let me share. I'm going to tell you why in just a moment, why I'm going to share this. But let me share with you right now. Some of that inheritance that you have received, but you have only received it in part. Now, I'm basing this principle, not only the truths in the New Testament, but the picture that we receive in the Old Covenant, when they came into the promised land and they conquered it, Scripture says, in about five years, did they immediately inherit the entire land? Was it all theirs? Was the enemy completely vanquished? God told Moses, he said, I can't have them inherit everything They will do so little by little. Otherwise, if they go into the land before they multiply into a large enough number, the wild animals will overwhelm them. This is what Scripture, this is what God told Moses. You will inherit the land, but you will do so gradually. And I'm going to suggest to you that there are certain portions, certain promises 
elements of God's inheritance to his believers that he gives to them gradually. And I just listed some of these that are not given gradually. They are yours. There is nothing you can do about it because you have believed it belongs to you. But listen to some of these. The joy of our salvation. I want you to consider this. Does every Christian maximally experience the joy of their salvation? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you would have to be the first. I'm not going to have you raise your hand, by the way. But you would say, you know what? I am not experiencing the joy of my salvation right now. And not just today, but like the last several weeks or months or years. David said, after he had sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband put to death Uriah the Hittite, in Psalm 51, when he makes this confession to the Lord, he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, that wasn't just because he was under the old covenant and didn't have the spirit. He actually did have the spirit because he was king and he was anointed. And even in that very same Psalm said, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me because he knew what happened to Saul. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the joy of your salvation is something that God calls you to inherit. It is fully available to you, but the degree to which you walk in it is your choice. Here's another one. Peace that surpasses understanding. And I'm just listing a few. of. There's so many. I'm just listing a few. Peace. I tell you what, there are times in which life is stressful, in which I'm kind of just saying, okay, God, when's the other shoe going to drop? And I feel robbed of peace. There's turmoil. There have been times in which I thought I was going to lose the business like that. There was actually in, two, in one hour time, I lost one third of my business. One third of my business. Now, God was gracious, and within about a month or two, he not only restored that third, but gave me more. The two guys that were working for me, I walked out of the, uh, the office. I won't tell you what company it was. They had basically said, Mike, the door to all of our businesses, all of our dealerships are closed to you because of this. It was not an insurmountable barrier, but I hadn't heard that they were, gonna, they were moving forward with any kind of plan like this. The door closed, one-third of my business gone. And I just grabbed the hands of the guys next to us. And we were out in the open, church, and we were just holding the hands, and we each prayed, and we, we stomped on Satan's head. We sought by the authority of Christ to crush his head and said, you will not do this. We are children of God, and we just cried out to God for his mercy. Well, God did something amazing. But I want to tell you, that so many times during the next month or two, my peace was gone. My heart was beginning to fill, be filled with fear. When I preached several weeks ago about crossing the Red Sea, those Israelites standing before the Red Sea, I tell you what, they had no peace as they saw the army of Pharaoh bearing down on them ready, so they thought, to wipe them out, kill them. What, did you, did, you, did you take us out of Egypt because there were no more graves left there and we need to be buried here in the desert? Is that why you did this, Moses? And so filled with complaining because they had been robbed of peace. You see, church, peace is part of your inheritance, 
But the enemy can steal that. Here's another one. The empowerment of the Spirit. You have the Spirit, but as you go through the book of Acts, and and we looked at this last year, Luke uses the phrase receive the Spirit different than Paul does. Luke focuses not on the initial reception of the Spirit. Luke looks at the empowering work of the Spirit that doesn't always take place at conversion. We saw that in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 19. The point, though, is that we can either walk in the empowerment of the Spirit or we can choose not to. And I'm going to tell you this. The apostles needed regular filling with the Spirit. The availability of all the spiritual gifts. It is possible, and I grew up in a denomination that believed that many of the gifts of the Spirit were not available to us today. As I searched my Bible and as I studied it hard, I've discovered that all the gifts of the Spirit are available today. They haven't changed. They are still available. But you see, I was walking without many of them because I just believe, well, I can't have them. But this is part of our inheritance, the spiritual gifts, the fruit of the Spirit. These are yours. Can I ask you, do you grow in love? Help me out here, church. Do you grow in love? You can answer me. Do you grow in love? Yes, I I hope you're growing in love. Are you growing in humility? I guess if you answer that one, then you're filled with pride. And Never mind, I won't ask that one. Do you grow in in, in patience? Do Do you grow in gentleness? There we go. Nine fruits of the Spirit are listed there. I hope we're growing in these, which means that the inheritance is made available to us, but as we yield to the Lord, we grow in them more and more. There are certain freedoms. As we slough off the deeds of the flesh, and again, crucify the old man and and the flesh daily, I believe that God wants to daily restore your soul, not just at your conversion, but every day. Now, this is something that God has just been imparting to me. Maybe it's because of the circumstances I'm going through, or maybe it's because of the circumstances you're going through, or both. But in Psalm 23, it says that God is our shepherd. We're not going to want for anything. And he leads us into green pastures, and he leads us beside quiet waters. He's sheep get frightened in waters that are rough. And so the shepherd leads them beside quiet waters. To what end? To restore my soul. What are your green pastures? What are the quiet waters he's leading you to? I'm going to tell you this, and it can come in many ways, but it will always be the presence of God. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning. Not just taking in truth like a a matrix download, if you understand what I'm talking about, but it's not just something that's coming into our mind and now we can stand up and we can spout off doctrine really well and, and teach the scriptures really well, but the scriptures that have ministered to our hearts and restored our souls, that's what Mary was really looking for. Now, Martha knew the teachings of Jesus, but she was so filled with trouble, fretting, and Jesus said, Martha... 
Mary has chosen that better thing. I'm going to tell you, church, choose the better thing. Spend time in the presence of God. This is so crucial. Spending time in the word to be like that tree planted by streams of water. Seeking God in prayer and allowing through prayer, not just to move the hand of God in prayer. That's where God changes you. Worship. I loved worship this morning. Band, you did a phenomenal job. Spirit of God, you were amazing. Jesus, I believe, was exalted. When we worship, that is, worship is so much different than any other thing that we do. Because in worship, hopefully we're declaring truth. Not just man's made up ideas, but truth. And as we worship God in truth and worship him in spirit, it has a way of connecting with everything that we are, with our mind, our will, our emotions, physically demonstrating worship, David dancing undignified before the Lord. And he says, and I will continue to be undignified before these slave girls because it's before God that I worship and not man. And so we are changed in worship. We need it, church. You need worship. You need it. You also need fellowship. You need fellowship because in that fellowship is when iron sharpens iron. Can I just suggest to you that when iron sharpens iron, sparks fly? This is a truth. Sparks fly in my marriage. No, I won't go there. Uh, no, seriously, though, in my marriage, my wife has sharp... I would, I would hope that to some degree I've helped sharpen my wife. She's nodding her head. Great, great. Uh, but we sharpen one another. In marriage, we sharpen one another, which means we are not always agreeing. We want to. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? We have to humble ourselves. We have to apologize more. I have to apologize more frequently, and I like to admit, but I'm being sharpened in fellowship. And each of you sharpen me. And, and I love to see you worship. I, I loved Torah and her mom as they came up to, to do the streamers and just worship. I don't know. When I, when I saw that, and then when Mickey Lana came up next to her daughter, that communicated something to me as mother and daughter were next to each other worshiping in this rhythm that God has created us with. This is, I'm getting back to worship, aren't I? But fellowship, yeah. um, it, I, it was beautiful. I, I, I love that. It ministered to me. I love it when I see my daughter Kate as she's worshiping and dancing before the Lord. And many of you, um, I will never come up here and dance before. I won't, I'm, that's, yeah, not my gift. Not doing that, okay. But I will say this, when we are together and the Spirit of God ministers through you to me and hopefully I to you, there is a connection here of God's Spirit, a fellowship, and there is a restoring and a refreshing as we build each other up in the Lord. You cannot do without fellowship. I've heard so many Christians in our day, I don't need the church, it's just Jesus and me. They come up with this cute little acronym, JAM, Jesus and me. I don't think God thinks it's cute. Am I being too blunt? The truth is we need each other. Yes, I need Jesus. I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but I need to love my neighbor, including my fellow believer, as well. 
And there is this need for fellowship. The coronavirus, man, I hate it with a passion because there are many of us here who, who can't be here and I miss them. I'm not blaming them, but I miss them. Every now and then I get a chance to go over to, you know, with Brian and Aisha behind a closed door. Brian has asthma, so he has to be very sensitive to this. I call Stephen on a weekly basis, trying to make these connections because I need them. I need them as a part of my life. Stephen sees things that when he shares them with me, they, they build me up. Aisha and Brian, they build me up. Their example is amazing. I love them as their new parents. It's great. We need, I need you. You need me. We need each other. I want to ask you a question. If God's purpose, (laughs) excuse me, was to take them out of Egypt and take them into the promised land, why does scripture tell us that they spent one year at Mount Sinai? They spent an entire year. Now, initially, Moses told Pharaoh, just give us three days. Well, that three days turned into a year, 365 days, more than 100 times more than what he asked for. Well, he didn't have to go back to Pharaoh and give his reasons because Pharaoh was D-E-A-D. Did I spell that right? He was gone. He and his army destroyed. He was only accountable before God, and God was saying, I need you to come to Mount Sinai. Do you know what happened at Mount Sinai? That's where they received the principles of the Old Covenant, what we call the law or the Mosaic law. They needed this. The reason why they needed this was because they needed the law in order how to maximally experience the promised land, which included their relationship with God, but it also included the land itself. They needed the Mosaic law. Now, as we go into the new covenant, obviously the law has its place. We don't discard it. We call that antinomianism. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, tells them, he says, Oh, children, okay, listen up, children, obey your parents in everything. He could almost hear the voices, What? You don't know my parents in everything? And so what he does is he quotes from the, from the Mosaic law. He says, obey your children. He says, obey your parents, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on earth. He quotes with authority from the law. Now, I'm not going to get into it how Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law and the moral law. They were different in how he did this. The ceremonial law discarded, the moral law was not. Now, there's more that can be said about that, but here's what I'm going to say. When we now move into the new covenant, we receive principles of this new covenant. We receive the instruction manual, if you will. My wife, many, many years ago, while her Aunt Shirley was alive, and young, had her first car. I think it was her first car. But no one told her how to take care of the car. She just know, I need to put gas in this car. And that's all she ever did. And she drove it for tens of thousands of miles, only putting gas in it. 
one day it broke down. And to my, under my recollection, the mechanic looked at her after analyzing and said, have you ever put oil in this thing? And she looked at him and said, this thing needs oil? And the car, from what I remember, the car was destroyed because she didn't know how to take care of the car. Just yesterday, after the wedding, we're cleaning up. And I say, hey, to someone, can you take this vacuum cleaner and vacuum that? Can I use the other one because this one's not working? And I said, well, it's not. In what way is it not working? And they said, well, whenever you push it over, you know, lint and, you know, sand or any dirt, it kind of just spits the dirt everywhere. Now, I've had to do stuff like this. That's a symptom of a clogged vacuum cleaner. Now, many of you guys, you're just thinking, oh, boy, if I, 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 I'll get in there, I'll fix it, and this is now a task, and you're going to conquer, and so I'm just thinking, hmm. so is it clogged? And the person looked at me like, uh, this is empty, so, uh, no. And I said, okay, well, just give me a minute. So in the back, I lift up this portion. I'm looking in it. No, that's not clogged. It goes back on. And so then I take this off, and I'm not going to do that right now. And it was clogged with hair and dirt and you name it and all disgusting stuff. And I'm in there pulling it out and have to take this off. I clean it out. I plug it back in, and I press the power button, and boom, man, it's sucking up everything. Okay, had to pull the carpet out. I mean, it was, it, it was back to its powerful sucking abilities. This is one vacuum that really sucks. And so I <laughs> plugged this thing in. It was working great. But you see, if I did not take care of that clog, this thing would be utterly useless to me. It would just spit everything out and scatter the dirt and not suck it up. Can I dare make the analogy now, bringing this home? There can be clogs in your life. You can choose not to follow biblical principles in this new covenant. In this newfound relationship with God, he says you have the ability to not walk in these amazing promises of this inheritance that I have given you. Remember, some of these promises are inevitable. Your sins are forgiven. God doesn't pull, God doesn't say, okay, I was just kidding. Or, you know, you got to walk, you got to obey me, and you got to do everything if you want to keep your sins forgiven. No, the Bible says that we will always have our sins forgiven. The wrath of God by the cross of Christ has removed his the cross of Christ has removed the wrath of God forever from our lives. We no longer live under the condemnation of the holiness or the law of God. We don't. However, there are certain things that we grow in step by step, that we take the land gradually. And to do this, you need to apply these biblical principles it might be getting into the word regularly. It might be worship. It might be fellowship. It might be other things. How about this? And I mentioned it last week, forgiveness. Now, I mentioned forgiveness because forgiveness, or rather the flip side of that unforgiveness, is very unique 
Because about unforgiveness, Proverbs says that it rots your bones. Bitterness rots your bones. Some of you are, what? Rots my bones? I tell you what, it will eat you alive. It truly will. It will physically destroy you. But I'm going to suggest to you that it will spiritually destroy you too. Jesus said in Matthew 18, he just shared a parable prompted by uh, Peter's question. So if my brother sins against me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? And you remember what Jesus told him. No, 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 70 times seven. So does that mean that he's only supposed to give him, forgive him 490 times? No, it's, we're supposed to forgive him no matter what. And Jesus, at the end of this parable about forgiveness, about a servant who had been forgiven but cho chose not to forgive another servant, he says he turned, him, the king turned him over to, and in the Greek it says this, he turned him over to the tormentors. Whatever that tormentor is, they could be demons. Demon, demons are alive and well here on planet Earth. We have authority over them, Jesus tells us in Luke 10, but they're very present, they're very real. There could be circumstances in which we're so filled with fear in front of our Red Sea and we fail to grasp faith that we are sunk before our Red Sea crossing. And we have abandoned faith. We have just given up. We've thrown in the towel. Unforgiveness opens the door to the attack of the enemy almost like no other sin. If there is unforgiveness in your heart, my friend, you must let it go. Cancel the debt. You have to do this. It will eat you alive. It will destroy your life. It will keep you from fully grasping, apprehending the entire promises of God in this inheritance that he has offered you. This is how significant forgiveness is. Unrepented sin. I'm not talking about when we sin, maybe even many times, but we repent of it. I'm talking about unrepentant sin. I'm talking about sin that feeds your flesh. Galatians 5 says that there's a battle between the flesh and the spirit. But if you are constantly turning to the flesh in this sin and never to the spirit, turning a deaf ear to the spirit, rejecting his conviction and the promptings, because in Galatians 5, it says you're not led by the law, you're led by the Spirit. But if you refuse to be, and you allow sin in your life, and you do not ever repent of it, and there are Christians alive today, and they're caught in this sin, and they just never repent. And they've embraced it. They live in it. It's a part of their lifestyle. Spiritually, that will suck you dry. To take that one step further back into the old covenant analogy of inheriting the promised land, you will be like Jabez, who, Scripture says, he, he cried out to God, and he said, blessing, I will bless you. And he says, um, wow, I, I'm forgetting the phrase, but he says that he will enable him to fully inherit his blessing. Jabez, no doubt, lived during the time of the judges. We can see that in context of First Chronicles. But there were still enemies who were on his property. 
And God said, I want to extend your territory. But what if Jabez said, no, it's too hard, too risky. You know, I got his family to support. I'll just let him live there. And tell you what, you let him live there, you let sin into your life, unrepenting, under the radar, constantly turning away, allowing it to feed, it will destroy you. And if you're caught up in this, if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart today, I am encouraging, I'm challenging you. Surrender and just simply say, God, I don't want this. It is stronger than me. Not your spirit, but it's stronger than me. And so I yield to you and I ask you, God, give me the strength to repent and turn away and follow you. Because if you do not, you will not be able to extend your territory. You will not be able to walk in all of these amazing aspects of his inheritance that he's offering you today. You will not. A self-focused life. You know, Jesus says, and I need to wrap it up with this. Jesus said that if you want to come after me, you're going to have to deny self, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, each of those commands are in the present tense in the Greek. And what that means then is that it is present, continuous action. Some translations use the word daily to express this. Deny self, take up your cross, follow me daily. But if we live a self-focused life and it is always all about me, that will keep you from inheriting the joy of your salvation the way you want, the peace that surpasses understanding, walking in the spirit as you desire. And so, Mount Sinai for the Israelites was where they learned how to inherit that land fully. Now in Christ, we don't have to learn all of these kingdom principles before we really start following Christ. They are a part of our life constantly. But if you are not gleaning, if you are not listening to the Spirit, if you are not following the principles of the kingdom, you will not be able to inherit everything that Christ has offered you as children of God, as daughters and sons of the Most High. So I'm going to encourage you today. If you feel stuck, if you feel like Jabez, God, there's people on my land. I don't feel like I'm walking in the joy of the Lord. I don't, I don't feel like I have this peace. I'm in constant friction with others in the body of Christ. I'm not sure I really enjoy this thing called the Christian life. You know, you promise so much, but deliver so little. Ooh careful with that one because God is going to start speaking to your heart. Maybe he is this morning. I want to close in prayer. I, I don't want this, this message to speak words of condemnation to us. I'm actually hoping that they speak words of life because God is the one who can unclog your life. For many of us, it's like spiritual cholesterol that builds up, and you know what happens when you have too much cholesterol in your arteries and you have a heart attack. I want to tell you this. God has a plan for you. It is such a good plan. All the good works that he's prepared in advance for you to walk in because he is 
the craftsman of your life. I'm going to offer you as we pray. Let God clear out what's clogging your life. What's keeping you from walking fully in this inheritance that's yours. Maybe it's the joy of your salvation. Maybe it's the peace that passes all understanding. Maybe it's the joy of ministry you just you feel robbed of, so incapable of. God has a life for you in his kingdom that is so amazing. Let's walk in it together fully. Let's pray. Could you stand with me? Father, I want to thank you. We haven't come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, from which we receive our inheritance and we can walk in, in an amazing life that God honestly can be so hard at times. But you promise, you give, your grace is abundant. You lavish us with that grace. Father, if we are turning your grace away in our obstinance, in our heart that's unyielded, God, please today soften the heart. Grant us repentance that our heart would yearn and seek after you again. Examine our hearts, Lord. I just pray, Father, may we enjoy the green pastures and the quiet waters that you would restore our soul. Some of us, God, today, right now, that is what we long for. Restore souls today, God, please, in your presence. We love you so much, God. You have so much for us. Thank you for this inheritance. May we walk in it fully. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.